You know, during the, uh, during the Second World War, the German High Command did a series of tests to determine how best to break a man down to speak to whatever military secrets he knows. And so various options were tried and attempted. And what they found was that solitary confinement was the most effective way to break a man down so that he would confess or he would speak to whatever military plans he knew. Separate him from his friends, move him away from the community or, or, or the unit that he was in, move him away, put him in solitary confinement, and you would break him down. We, as human beings, were born for friendship. We are born for friendship. Ma- many of you have had the blessing of knowing the joys of friendship, an intimate, affectionate, safe environment. And, and, and m- most of us have suffered from failed friendships. We know the hurt and the pain that comes when friendships don't work right. But when you look at the two, we're drawn to wanting that intimacy of a good, godly friendship. In fact, I, I would suppose that most of us would take our 1,500 to 2,000 Facebook friends, and we would trade them all in for one or two good, intimate, close friends with whom we could be safe and vulnerable and protected by. Proverbs is a book, uh, as we've been looking at, this collected wisdom of God, God's wisdom for God's people who are living in a broken world, in, in a world that's fractured. And God is giving this wisdom to us that we might live in a way that we would find the image of God being restored in us, that we would be led to happiness and joy as we live according to his wisdom. It's not a book of just helping people along in life. Here's a few axioms to life. Hey, if you do these things, you're going to get along better. You can't. It's, it's, it's God's wisdom for God's people so that they might display God's glory in this world. Today we're going to look at friendship. First, though, the need of friendship. I, I want to try to be very, very open and convince you of your need for friendship, that there is a great need. That would be the first heading I want you to be thinking about. Do I really need this because of the pain associated with it? Is it really necessary? And, and then some characteristics of friendship. You know, what makes a friendship godly versus just temporal or worldly? And then some of the threats. You know, every friendship that you have will be threatened by you and by others. And then ultimately, I want to I look for a few minutes at the ultimate friend we have, the ultimate f- friend we have in Christ. So the need of friendship. Before I do, let me just read 1717. There's, we're going to be covering a lot of verses. And as I said last week, and we did, we'll post on the, on the web kind of categories and verses with it. So you don't need to worry about getting every verse down. We'll post them for you. But I love this one in 1717. He says, a friend loves at all times. A brother is born for adversity. It kind of draws you to want. I, I want that. And, and I would argue we need that. We need that. Now listen, friendship is not our idea. This, it's not a society construct. It's not a bunch of people coming together saying, hey, friendship would make our society and republic go well. Uh, so, friendship is God's idea. 
And it was birthed out of the very character of God. I want you to understand that you need friendship because God has baked it in you. That the very nature of God, as he expresses himself in Scripture, is a triune God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. They have always existed, Scripture tells us, in perfect unity and harmony and fellowship. They were and always will be the first and closest of friends. And when God creates us, he creates us like him. In Genesis 1.26, we read these words. He says, let us, you, you hear the plurality, you hear the, the triune nature of God, let us make man in our image. So God has created the man and the woman in the image of himself, which is born for friendship. Now what's interesting is when he, he creates male and female, both in need of friendship. Now, of course, in Genesis 2, when you, when you hear about him creating the man, and then he says to his creation, it's not good that he's alone. In other words, why isn't it good that he's alone? Because he can't find his way to the store? No, it isn't that. Thank you. My wife would find that humorous. It's not good that he's alone simply because he was born for friendship. And so he creates the woman to be the friend of man. And so the two were the first best friends that God created. You see this in the nature of the relationship. In Genesis 2.25, it says they were both naked and unashamed. This is before sexuality comes into play in, in chapter 3. This is the nature of a perfect friendship. There is nakedness, there is transparency, there is openness, and there is no shame. There's no sin. There is a joy with one another. So God has created us for friendship. It's not a nicety in your life. It's a necessity. You have to have it. God's made you with it. Now, the sad part of it is, of course, you go right to Genesis 3, and you see the conflict that the man and the woman didn't want to live by God's design or by his desire. And so they move against God and against his will. And, of course, that brings in what? Conflict. Conflict in the friendship that we had with God and conflict that we had with each other. And you see it borne out in chapter 4 when the, when the two sons are against each other. And then you see it just move out through creation and through society. This conflict opposing the friendship that God established. So I want you to see that there's a true need that you have for friendship. Now this isn't embraced by everybody right now. Uh, many, many of us here, perhaps even some in this room, you don't think friendship is a necessity. In fact, you think it's a hazard. It's a hazard to my feelings. If I get in a friendship, I'm going to be hurt. And so we take the position of, you know what, go at it alone, take care of yourself, look out for number one. That's the kind of attitude. This isolation and insulation where if we can just avoid getting too close, then we won't be hurt. It's kind of immortalized in the words of that song by Paul Simon, I Am a Rock. I was raised with Simon and Garfunkel. And if you remember the song, it goes like this. He says, I've built walls, a fortress, steep and mighty that none may penetrate. I have no need of friendship. Friendship causes pain. It's laughter and it's loving. I disdain. I am a rock. I am an island. This is the philosophy of many people. And it's a tragic philosophy. You can't live that way. You may insulate yourself from hurt. You also insulate yourself from joy and satisfaction in the way you've been created. 
So that, that's the first, you know, some people want to try to insulate themselves. Others of us, we tend to go for more of the superficial variety of friendship. You know, we build our friendship around commonalities. Age of our kids, the sports that we're in, educational philosophy, maybe cultural heritage, maybe political association. We build our friendships around these temporal and these transient time of, type of connection points. And, and we know that they're weak. Just circumstances change. Your kids grow up. You, ha- you change your opinions on things, and you begin to separate. Or one misspoken word, or perhaps love not extended, or perhaps insensitivity. I mean, we know that friendships are hard to maintain. Look at the record number of divorces. You have two people that have more reason to stay together than any other two people. They've got kids together, perhaps. They have a home together. They share a bed together. They share finances together. And yet, insensitivity... Love failed to be extended, and they, they separate. I, I mean, we just, friendships built on superficial or temporal means aren't designed to last. You, as a Christian, if you're a Christian, you have to know the need you have for friendships. And you have to see it as fundamental to your nature. It's not a nicety or an additive to a better life. It is fundamentally who you are because you've been made in the image of God. So you have to see it as a necessity. You also have to see it as hazardous because we live in a broken world of sin. We're goofy, we're goofy people. I know you think you're the only normal one. I understand that. I feel the same way. I think everybody else is a goofball. I do. But, but we're all odd. We're all going to offend each other. We're all going to sin against each other. We're all going to assume that what we think about a given situation is right and everybody else is wrong. We're going to feel very free to judge the opinions and the the actions of everybody else without regard to maybe what they're going through or what their background is or anything else. And so as a Christian, we have this tension. We've been wired for friendship, and yet we are trying to exist as friends in a broken, fallen world. What the Christian knows is that friendship has to be built around the gospel. It has to be built around who and what Christ has done for and in us. Now, I'm going to speak about this more at the end of the sermon. I just want you to understand the necessity. The Christian knows, yes, we need friendship. Will we struggle with friendships in here? Absolutely. But we have the gospel. And the gravitational pull of the gospel should be greater than kind of the hesitancy that we have in drawing near to one another. So that's the need of friendship. Where are you on this? Do you agree with me? I mean, in your heart right now, are, are you... Are you saying, I I don't fully agree. I've just got burned from another Christian relationship that went sideways. I don't agree with them. I mean, are are you just, or or when you look at your relationships, are they mile wide and an inch deep? They're not giving you the joy that you think you have? What, What are your, I mean, do you see the need? Do you see the need as expressed in the effort that you make to being friends? I think when you see the characteristics that Solomon kind of lays out for us about the nature of friendships, I think there'll be a draw for you. So so there's a need for us, but we have a need for friendships, not just to say, I've got friends, but actually that I have biblical friends, or I have godly friends, I have real friends. And and, and let me just go through a few examples of some of the marks, some of the characteristics, kind of like a plumb line. So I'm going to give you some examples of what what Solomon teaches us as godly friendships, and I want you to hold your friendships against what I tell you and to see how close or how far away 
your friendships are from what Solomon encourages. Number one, in terms of characteristics, I've moved from the need of friendships now to what are the characteristics of friendship? Number one would be loyalty, a constant loyalty. Um, in Proverbs 27, uh, or sorry, 1717, 17, the one I read at the beginning, a friend loves at all times. A brother is born for adversity. So those are kind of parallel thoughts, a friend and a brother being equivalent, loves at all times, even including adversity. You know, so, so there's a constancy in the love within the friendship you have in spite of the trials or the circumstances that you may be in. So this is a person that you can trust your heart to and, and you can rest in their constant love even if you go and offend them. So this, is, this, would be in, this would be in contrast to the fair weather friend. The fair weather friend, of course, when the sun's out and, the, and everything's going well, then the friendship is there. But when, when trials come or difficulties come, that the friendship begins to waver. So you see this in the prodigal son, right? Prodigal son, when he had plenty of money, he had plenty of friends. When he had no money, he had no friends. So, I mean, it was attached to circumstances. But, but what we're talking about here is a loyalty that I will be loved by you even though you know my faults, even though you know my foibles, even though you know my shortcomings. And if circumstances change and I, I get a little ornery sometimes, you're going to love me in spite of that. And you're going to love me through that. You're going to really love me faithfully. So it's a picture of Jesus. You know, Jesus in, in John chapter 13, verse 1, it says, when he knew the time had come for him to depart this world to be with his father, he said this, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The, the love of Christ didn't have a terminal point. It was all the way, faithful. To the end. That's what I'm talking about, a faithful love that we would have. That, that sort of biblical friendship, to the end. But, but not just a, a faithful and loyal love, also honesty and speech would be another characteristic. Honesty and speech would be another characteristic of a biblical friendship. Solomon informs us in 27, 5 and 6, he says, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Wounds from a friend can be trusted but an enemy multiplies kisses. Now, that's kind of a paradoxical statement. Wounds from a friend and, and kisses from an enemy. You'd think kisses from a friend and wounds from the enemy, but he switches it up. He says wounds from a friend. In other words, he's calling for an honesty in speech even though it may wound you. So friends will speak the truth to one another even though it may hurt your feelings. Flattery, that comes from the enemy. They're willing to kiss you. They're not willing to get into the, the behavior that may bring about a, a, a poor response from you. And so they'll flatter you. And they won't, they won't speak. And, and Solomon says he's really an enemy. You thought he was a friend? All that kissing, all that compliments, all the encouragement? He didn't want to say the hard thing. That's an enemy to you. I mean, I mean if you're thinking long term, if you're thinking, get right with God and be prepared to see God, that would be considered an enemy. In fact, he says this in 28, 23, he says, he who rebukes a man will, in the end, gain more favor than he who has a flattering tongue. This is really a hard thing in our community, that we don't want to speak the truth to one another because we're afraid of hurting someone and that we hesitate in what we say. 
uh, that, that we soften it or we just go silent on it. There's a Sicilian proverb that says, only a friend will tell you when your face is dirty. You know, there's, I, I still remember being in a situation where uh, I did see food on someone's face and uh, I was scared to share it, and I didn't share it. Someone else did. They did it in a very gentle, sweet way. And I was sitting right there looking like uh, just a, a dumbbell the whole entire time. And, uh, but, but it was kind of them because to go around and find that on your face later would be, would be mildly embarrassing. That's just a picture of what we're doing for our souls. This is what a biblical friendship does. And I think we hesitate because we're afraid of hurting people. But wounds from a friend can be trusted. Who else is going to say these things? I, I think we've gotten twisted around in this. There was a, a blog I read from John Piper about the hesitancy we have to speak the truth to somebody because what happens is they get hurt and then they hold us accountable and they hold us guilty. Because if I don't say the right thing to you, let's say I come up and I speak something to you in a, in a, in a humble, in a gentle way, respectful of you, I speak to you, uh, what happens is you can get your feelings hurt and then look at me and hold me guilty for hurting you. And, and now I'm all of a sudden the guilty party and you're the victim. And here's what he says about this. And this works against us walking in the manner of this teaching. He says, not feeling loved and not being loved are not the same. Jesus loved all people well, and many did not like the way he loved them. Emotional blackmail, that's what he calls this, emotional blackmail. If I feel hurt by you, you're guilty. There is no defense. The hurt person has become God. His emotion has become judge and jury. Truth doesn't matter. All that matters is the sovereign suffering of the aggrieved. It's above question. This emotional device is a great evil. I have seen it often in my three decades of ministry, and I'm eager to defend people who are being wrongly indicted by it. That's what happens regularly in ministry. You go and you bring a word, perhaps, of, of godly correction. They're hurt, and now you're guilty for hurting them because they don't feel like they're loved by you. Well, they are being loved. They're just not being loved in the way that they want. We, as believers, have to move beyond this threat. And do it any wounds from a friend can be trusted. Do you understand that? The vital role you have with each other. It parallels and really follows the third characteristic, which is wise counsel. In fact, we read this in um, chapter 27. He says, perfume and incense bring joy to the heart, and the pleasantness of one's friend spring from his earnest counsel. The biblical friend is one who is going to want to add to the wisdom of the friend. In other words, that, that I'm just not going to come along with, with cheerleading words, but I may come along with counsel or wisdom that may be different than you're thinking or different than the direction that you have. And this is to be a good thing for you, this idea of, of adding counsel to your life. In fact, he says in 27.17, is iron sharpens iron, so one so as one man sharpens another. You know, this idea of, of us weighing in with each other's lives, that's the nature of a friendship. I, a couple of years back when I preached on Jonathan Edwards, 
if you remember, at the end of his life, he was pastoring out in Northampton in Massachusetts and was doing great there, was writing, loved pastoring, working with the Indians. And uh, Princeton College at the time, in the 18th century, had invited him to be its new president. He didn't want any parts of it. He wanted to continue pastoring and he wanted to continue to serving in the capacity that, that he was. And his friends got together and they said, we think you ought to take it. They counseled him against his wishes to take the charge at Princeton. They had reasons for it, and they enumerated them. They prayed about it. They wept together. Here's the funny thing. Edwards followed them. He took his plans, his desires, set it aside, and followed the counsel of his friends. Now, we move houses. We take jobs. We get married. We do all kinds of things, and we never involve the counsel of another believer. Or we only involve them if we think they're going to affirm what we already want to do. That leaves us very, very, very defenseless to our own ignorance. I mean, to think that I can make all decisions from the brain matter between my two ears is absolute arrogance. In fact, Solomon speaks to this in chapter 20, verse 5. The purpose in a man's heart is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. In other words, we have trouble knowing our own motivations. Why am I doing what I'm doing? Why do, I, why do I want to do what I want to do? I need a man, I need a woman of understanding to help me draw out. Am I thinking right? Am I thinking clearly? We need, biblical friendship involves wise counsel. Listen to, listen to what John Wesley said. This comes from his journal. Of course, you know John Wesley, the 18th century preacher, both in England, but also here in the States. He says, I know of no other place under heaven where I can have some friends always at hand of the same judgment, engaged in the same studies, persons who are awakened into a full conviction that they have but one work to do upon earth. They see at a distance what the one work is. He says, uh, in the recovery of a single eye and a clean heart, who in order to do this, they have, according to their power, absolutely devoted themselves to God. So these are the friends he's looking for and to follow after their Lord, denying themselves and taking up their cross. Here's what he says to that friend. To have even a small number of such friends constantly watching over my soul and administering, as need is, reproof or advice with all plainness and gentleness is a blessing I know not where to find in any part of the kingdom. Do you feel that way? Is that what your friendships are made of? Are your friendships characterized by this loyal love? by honesty and speech, by a willingness to seek and submit to the advice and the wisdom of your friends. Or another characteristic would be sacrifice. Do you see that as part of your relationship? That you are called to sacrifice for one another. It may be patience with their faults. It, it may be, it may be um, vulnerability with, with your own fear of sharing and drawing close to people. Or it may be forgiveness to sacrifice. Yes, I'm going to forgive him even though he sinned against me before. There can be no friendship apart from you sacrificing. You, you have to sacrifice time. It may be money. It may be, it may be effort. It may be patience. There has to be sacrifice associated with it. There, there can be no friendship. It's a quid pro quo. It's a contractual relationship if there's no sacrifice. And, and then the last characteristic I would bring up about a godly friendship is, is that it's selective. There's a selective aspect to who you're going to draw close to. He says in 12, 
26, the righteous choose their friends carefully, but the way of the wicked leads them astray. There's a selectivity to our friendships. I don't want you to hear me being snooty or to be cliquish, like I'm going to you know, pick and choose the ones I really want, because he does warn about the bad friends that want to be friends with the rich. But to be selective is more an indication of the power and the presence of a good friendship and the influence over you. In other words, if someone's going to have a significant influence over you, you want them to be a God-fearing person. You know, the, the, Parents are not a killjoy when they say to the youth, you better choose your friends wisely. I, I mean, it, Proverbs warns us, don't be friends with the angry man. Don't be friends with the angry man. The angry man that blows his top is a man not walking with God. He, he can be a fearful man. Or the self-indulgent with food or alcohol. When you're self-indulgent and you don't know the benefits and the joy of self-control, that can be a dangerous friend. It can lead you into the same self-indulgence. He's not saying we're not to love them. We're not even to serve them. Be mindful. The friend is one that exerts a godly influence over you. In fact, David prayed in Psalm 119.63. He says, I am a friend to all who fear you and to all who follow your precepts. That's his friend. If you fear the Lord, that's the beginning of knowledge. That's a friend you want. J.C. Ryle, the great 19th century preacher, summed up friendship this way, and you've heard me say it before, but I love it because it's, it's such a clarifying way to determine who is a friend or not. He said, if you have two weeks left to live, you've been given a, a date of death, you've got cancer, you've got two weeks left to live, who do you want by your bedside? Who would you want? Boy, I'll tell you, if that question came to me a number of years ago, my Facebook friends would be like dropping like a brick. I mean, it would be, I don't know, there aren't that many. Back before I knew Christ. I mean, ask yourself this. If you were to die, if you were to die July 13, who would you want by you for the next two weeks? Who would be important to have? So where are you on this? When you look at your friendships, are, are, these, are these kind of the plumb line, if you will, of, of, um, of loyalty and honesty of speech and, and uh, wise counsel and, and sacrifice and selectivity? Uh, who are your friends that would match up with that? Do you have those friends? Uh, do you want those friends? Yeah, I, I would say to you, you men first, actually, in here, and, and let me speak to the men, because men, I think, we have an easier time acting as if we don't need friends. It's harder for us to break through the surface besides just the peripheral and the temporal. We're, we're classic at spending time talking about nothing, and nothing of an eternal value. Now, I, I don't disparage that conversation. I, I, in, in measure, in measure I, I like to talk about sports and the events of the day, and I find no problem with that. But if that's the bulk of my friendship, then what does that say about us? Men, we have got to work harder, and it takes effort, and probably it really will take the help of your wife to help you be willing to move in conversational directions and depth that is not yours easily. But we have to fight for this. this. This kind of friendship doesn't fall off a tree because you bump into it. You have to pursue it. You have to work for it. But men, it, it's life-giving. And for women, I, I think you're more naturally 
gifted to be in friendship with people. But the content of the friendship can be oftentimes things that are not necessarily as redemptive as they ought to be. Again, I'm speaking in measure here. I'm not speaking in black and white or absolute terms. I'm, I'm saying that the content of your friendship among women ought to be gospel-centered. And, and youth, I mean, those who are young here and you're just beginning to fashion true friends, who are you listening to? Can you, like David, say, I am a friend to those who fear God? That's a friend we ought to have. So, so assess your friendships. I mean, I mean, just take a minute, even this afternoon. Ask, have I been this kind of friend? Have I exercised honesty in speech? Have I been loyal to love? Have I peeled when troubles have come? I think we have to do this. Why? Because I think the nature of who we are as people, we're going yeah, to struggle with this. In fact, it really leads us to the third point, which is the pitfalls of friendship, the threat to friendship. Because of our nature, because of our sinfulness, we're going to offend each other. So we need to know what is it that undermines a legitimate friendship. I remember the first time I saw one of the girls write BFF on a card. And so I said, what's BFF? And they said, well, it's best friends forever. I said, well, here's to hoping. I mean, I hope, I hope it's forever. I just don't really think so. But, but here I'm bringing in this pessimistic older mind. But the reality of it is that friendships are fragile. And there are things that you and I can do to undermine that which God is restoring in us. Uh, the first thing would just be gossip. We touched on this last week. Gossip Solomon speaks to this. Here's what he says. He says, whoever repeats the matter separates close friends. You know what gossip is. Gossip can be true. It's something that you have heard from a friend that's intimate, perhaps true, perhaps damaging, and you share it with a, another person without his knowledge or without his presence. So you're, you're spreading a tale. Now, what's interesting about Solomon's proverb here is whoever repeats the matter, he's not saying you've got to spin the tale 30 times to be considered a gossip or to separate. You just need to do it one time. Hebrew word just means one time. You repeat it one time. And can't you imagine if I share something intimate with you, something really close to my heart? Perhaps I'm really embarrassed over it, but I, but I need to talk to you about it. And then you share that with somebody else. It immediately, trust is eroded. And friendship is all sudden now on oxygen. You know, it, it's a terrible thing. We do it all the time. We share details and morsels of people's lives all the time. Remember one time we were at seminary, and I'd been talking to a friend on the phone, and uh, it, back, back in the day when phones hung on walls. And uh, I hung up the phone, or I thought I had hung up the phone. And when you didn't hang up the phone... The line stayed open, and the other line couldn't get a new line if they wanted to. So I thought I hung up the phone. Karen and I went about talking for probably, oh, five, six minutes. And all of a sudden, I hear a knock on the door. And they said, uh, it was a man, actually, I was on the phone with. And he said, hey, you didn't hang up your phone. Now, he had heard our conversation for the next five minutes. By God's grace, we didn't say anything stupid, right? It was really, but it could have been the other way. He said, you didn't hang up your phone. I've heard everything you've said. And I thought, wow. And immediately, I'm, I'm doing this doll back. What did I say? Did I, say I didn't have the sanctity of heart to know that I didn't say anything wrong. I had to figure it out. 
and I hadn't, but it reminded me. If, he, if I had said, which I'm capable of, said something, it would have crushed him. It would have really just smashed the relationship. So, so, so gossip is a, is a terrible thing to our friendship, but also sarcasm. You know, sarcasm, you know, Solomon speaks of sarcasm. He says this, he says, like a madman shooting firebrands or deadly arrows is a man who deceives his neighbor and says, I was only joking. You know, we've said that. We say something sharp. You know, sarcasm from Latin means to cut the flesh. That's what it feels like. I was only joking. Well, I didn't think it was a joke because it's usually on the back of somebody else. It, it, it gets people scared to be in an intimate, intimate relationship because if that fodder becomes material for a sarcastic comment, it hurts. Or critical speech. You know, some of us struggle with, we are, we are critical over everything. And, and I, when I'm with a critical person, I often leave wondering, what are they saying about me now that I'm finished? So, so critical speech, all these, th- this misspeak can harm relationships, but not just misspeak, also just insensitivity. Insensitivity can bring great harm. Insensitivity, what do I mean by that? I mean that you're not sensitive to the nature of the friend that you have. Uh, for example, you just talk all the time. Some people want to come talk all the time. They talk about themselves. I'm tired of talking about me. You talk about me for a while. I mean, they just talk. And, and, and there's, there's no consideration or sensitivity to the person. Friendship has to be a bilateral relationship. If you talk all the time, guess what? You're not going to have a lot of friends. Or not just if you talk all the time. If you're, if you're over all the time or if you're trying to exact too much out of a friendship too soon. Proverbs, Solomon speaks this. He says, seldom, foot set, seldom set foot in your neighbor's house. Too much of you and they will hate you. It's just a, it's, it's a word of wisdom. My dad used to say he followed Ben Franklin's advice. Fish and company, three days, they both stink. You, you don't, you don't want to hang around. And my dad practiced that, uh, you know, even when we didn't want him to. Uh, but, but he didn't want to overstay his welcome. There's, there's, a, there's a sensitivity that we're to have to, to, be, to be sensitive to, you know, what do they need? Are we trying to draw too much out of this friendship? We need to back up, give a little bit of space. Another issue of sensitivity is just, just being aware of the, of the joy or the sadness of the person that's your friend. Solomon says this, he says, uh, like pouring vinegar on a wound is the one who sings song of merriment to the heavy heart. If you don't, if the person's struggling and you come in just telling them about how great your life is and how super your kids are when they're struggling perhaps with parenting, I mean, that's like vinegar on a wound. There's a sensitivity there. You know, it pulls you away from people. Not just sensitivity. Sensitivity would also be in, in meddling. You know, Proverbs speaks to this. He goes, whoever meddles in a quarrel, not his own, is like one who takes a passing dog by the ears. Isn't that great? Don't grab a dog by the ears when it's passing by. They'll bite you. They'll bite you. <clears throat> to meddle. I, I remember getting wisdom before the girls got married. Someone said, okay, so here's just a piece of in-law wisdom for you. Don't ever offer your opinion. Don't ever offer your opinion. And if they ask you, don't ever offer your opinion. <laughs> if they ask you again, really give it slowly and gently on a platter. Now, that's no statement against my children or my son-in-laws, but it's wisdom. They have their own life. They have their own issues. God, by his grace, will enable them to lead and love through it. But, but, but there's, a, there's a meddling that, that borderlines insensitivity. Another, another threat 
to friendships is just a contentious or angry spirit. Again, Solomon speaks to this. He says, good sense makes one slow to anger, and it's his glory to overlook an offense. Friends, we're going to offend each other in our friendships. I'm going to sin against you, you're going to sin against me, and one another. And and there is a glory. Sometimes we are so quick to want to right the wrong, and we want to straighten up what's been made crooked, and we come so quick to fix the issue that we just inflame the issue, and, and, and we kick it up in greater measure. To just stop, and I love what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 in terms of don't take your brother or sister to court, you know. He says, isn't it better to be wronged? At the end of the day, does it really matter? In three years, is this going to be an issue that you need to get all worked up over? Sometimes it's good just to let the offense pass. So those are some of the, those are some of the factors or threats to a, a good relationship. You know, this idea of misspeaking or insensitivity or perhaps even a contentious spirit. So where do you fall in this? Do you, are you thinking right now of relationships perhaps that you have wrecked? Perhaps you have gossiped? Perhaps you have been too sarcastic? Perhaps you have been insensitive to people? Perhaps you do have a contentious spirit? What are you going to do about that? What do we do as Christians? Do we, do we just suck it up and say, well, that's the way it is, got to move on? Got to press on, got to keep moving? Now, let me remind you of the glory of the Christian faith. It's repentance Repentance is the balm for our wounds. When I say repentance, I don't mean just, hey, sorry about that. I shouldn't have come off and said that. What I mean by repentance is I mean to say that I'm thinking with contrition. I am sorrowful. I've been cut to the heart. I shouldn't have said that to you. I was insensitive to you. And I'm asking you to forgive me because our friendship is, is of such value, and I have abused it with my sinful speech or my, or my arrogant insensitivity. And I love you, I want to reconcile with you, and I want to repent, and I want to ask you to pray for me that I might have grace to change. Has anybody ever done that to you? Have you ever done that to anybody? I know you've offended people, I've offended people. Again, Solomon speaks, he says, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy, not just from God, but from one another. That's why Paul says, I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. So so that's just something, you know, it's the need of friendship. You have it in you. It's not a nicety, it's a necessity. Secondly, we talked about the characteristics of friendship. There are many more than I went through. Go through Proverbs, you'll see them. And then, of course, the threats to the friendship. So, so what do we do right now? How, how do I move this ship forward? Well, I, I just want to spend a couple minutes and look at the ultimate friend, Jesus. He is a friend. He is one who will stick closer to you than a brother. Remember, why do I go to Jesus from Proverbs? You don't see his name in there. He's not really referenced specifically. Well, let me explain why I think this book of Proverbs is a gospel book. A proverb lays out the divine wisdom of God. It shows God's wisdom in all of its glory. When you, when you read through Proverbs, it's God's wisdom splashed across the pages. But also splashed across the pages is man's ineptitude and man's inability to be a friend and man's inability to do all these things. And so you have these, these, two, you have these two points of thought, God's glory and 
beauty and holiness and wisdom and man's foolishness and sinfulness and arrogance. That's what you have in Proverbs. Proverbs is screaming for someone to come and walk out that wisdom. Proverbs is screaming for somebody to do what God has said. Enter Jesus Christ. He walked in the wisdom of God in Proverbs to perfection, par excellence. He walked in it. And he walked in it, which made him a perfect friend of God. He was a friend of God. Think about when he was baptized and God spoke from heaven and said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. He's done everything I've wanted him. He's been a perfect friend to me. And so Jesus, as this perfect friend comes, and he comes to bring about a reconciliation between a friendship that has been ruined and wrecked by man. That's what Genesis 3, we wreck the friendship. Jesus has come to restore the friendship. He's come to walk in perfection, to restore it. This is what Galatians 4 says. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying here that Jesus has reconciled men and women to God through his own death. He became a man under a woman, under the law, lived perfectly under the law. He kept all the wisdom. He lived perfectly, established a righteousness that would put us in good place with God, and yet he bore the failings of us from Proverbs. And he bore that, and he bore the wrath of God. We sang about that justice and mercy on the cross. He bore our sins, he bore our shame, he bore our guilt, and died for it, so as to reconcile us to God. And not only did he reconcile us to God, it says here that he, in fact, made us sons of God. And not only that, but he sent the Spirit into our hearts, so that we could say God is now Father and Friend. So Jesus is not giving us wisdom and he's not living this life to model friendship for us so that we'd follow him. If that was the case, we'd always be discouraged. But he came not to model friendship, but to enact friendship, to establish a friendship with us. He didn't come to be an example for us simply. He came to be a savior to us to do what we couldn't do. And so he's made us now friends with God through faith. And now his spirit fills us. So now that we, by the power of the gospel, can walk as the friends that I've just described to you. But apart from the gospel, you can't. I mean, for the non-Christian here, I would say this. While it doesn't feel as if you're at enmity with God, the scriptures paint the picture that you are. You are a child of wrath, just as we were, the believers were. And yet it says in 1 Timothy 2.5 that there is only one mediator between God and man. So for the non-Christian here, if, you're, if, you, if you do sense the alienation, the aloneness from God, the distance, it's because the friendship has been ruptured. There's clear alienation. But Jesus has come as a friend to reconcile you to the Father. And by faith, asking for the forgiveness of God through Jesus Christ, casting your soul to the safety of Christ, that renews a friendship and reconciles you and brings you into sonship with God. That's what we call salvation, conversion. It's all the same. But for the Christian here, I would say to you, are you developing this relationship with God? Are you developing a friendship with the Father? Are you pursuing him as a friend? 
If you don't have a right relationship with God as a friend, you don't have a prayer to do it horizontally. That's why when Jesus sums up all the law, he says, love the Lord with God, with your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. They're tied together intimately. So pursue a friendship with God. Repent if you haven't been a friend. Many of you right now, I think, are probably under a degree of condemnation over, I don't think I'm a friend. You're feeling the way I was feeling on Tuesday and, and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday. I don't know that I really have been a friend. I know that I haven't been a friend in numerous cases. And I turn to God, and I don't want you to be burdened. I want you to turn to Christ. He's been the friend for us with the Father. And so now by faith, through repentance, we can become friends through the gospel. So let me turn now and ask for prayer. We have a few minutes. I would invite you to pray out loud. We're together as a body here. So let's pray for the corporate nature of our body. That, that, that our church would be a church of friends. We can't be perfect friends with every single person. That's not what I'm driving at. But that, that we would ask God that we would be a church, not a friendly, hi, how you doing? hope things are going well. But of true, intimate, deep friends. Let me pray for us and then an elder will close us. Father, thank you for the grace that you have given to us in our perfect friend who sticks closer to a brother, a faithful man who can find. We have found one in your son, Father, and we thank you for him.